0: Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You also get access to ad-free versions of the podcast. We recently released a bonus episode on the Shrek Traversy that uh, I created on its 20th anniversary, and we have another one in the works about the major streaming services and how each of them serve movie lovers. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash Show. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us! Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Keith Phipps.
2: And Genevieve Kosky. Tasha
0: is doing a walkabout, but we presume she'll find her way back for the next set of episodes. I'm happy to report that we have started going to the movies again. The Walter Merch edit of Orson Welles' Touch of Evil was my first time back, and can testify to the absolute pleasure of the experience, which I hope to never take for granted again. And yet we again picked a new movie that you can find on VOD as well as theaters because quarantinement is kind of here to stay. Nevertheless, as this week's classic movie demonstrates, it's a great time to go outside and have a picnic at a beautiful, secluded, rural locale.
2: Oh, no. You did it again, Scott.
0: D- did what again?
2: How much of Picnic at Hanging Rock did you actually watch? Like, what happens in Picnic at Hanging Rock?
0: Well, uh, a bunch of private school girls go on a field trip on Valentine's Day. A few go off on their own up the titular rock. Uh, Everyone has a nice nap. You know, it's one of those movies where not much happens, but it's very beautiful. Look out Peter Weir, great director, very underrated. Uh, He loves making movies outside. You also took a nice nap,
1: didn't you? I admit I I, I drifted in and out, but uh, I think I got the gist of it. Scott, you did not get the gist of it. Come on, this is a professional podcast. Our listeners count on us to see the movies we're talking about on the show. It's the least you can do. You can't bluff your way through that.
0: Uh, Well, I think this is one of the seminal works of the Australian New Wave. Don't you agree? Where would you put this in your Peter Weir rankings? Better or worse than Gallipoli?
1: No, you're not going to get out of this through empty superlatives and list making, Scott. But that's how I've done my job for years.
0: (sighs) Fine. I'll watch the last hour and 20 minutes of the film. Just hang tight, everyone, and talk amongst yourselves. Wow. Okay. Jeez, man. That was a lot more eventful than I assumed. Perhaps people should continue to stay inside after all. Seems dangerous out there. Keith, what are we looking at this week?
1: We are venturing to rural Australia for two films about unsolved mysteries and the effect they have on survivors. First up is Picnic at Hanging Rock, Peter Weir's 1975 breakthrough about three schoolgirls and a teacher who disappear without a trace one afternoon, leaving an entire community to obsess, perhaps forever, about what happened to them. Based on Joan Lindsay's novel, the film is loaded with symbols and suggestion, but short on easy answers, which invites the audience to fill in the blanks. Our second film, The Dry, is a much more conventional thriller about the convergence of two tragic events separated by over 20 years, with Eric Bana as a federal agent who returns to his drought-plagued hometown after a triple homicide, only to find himself under scrutiny from the townspeople.
0: So this week, we'll hop into the minivan of carriages and head out for a picnic at Hanging Rock. Then next week, we'll watch the sparks fly in the tinderbox landscape of the dry. Please join us.
2: Good morning, girls. Good morning,
1: Mrs. Aparamela. Well, young ladies, we are indeed fortunate in the weather for our picnic to Hanging Rock. I have instructed, mademoiselle, that as the day is likely to be warm, you may remove your gloves
0: once the drag has passed through Wood End. We will partake of luncheon at the picnic grounds near the rock. Once again, let me remind you, the rock itself is extremely
2: dangerous, and you are therefore forbidden any tomboy foolishness in the matter of exploration, even on the lower slopes. Miranda! Miranda!
0: Miranda, don't go on there! Come back! <laughs> what we see and what we seem are but a dream, a dream within a dream. With that piece of narration at the beginning of Picnic at Hanging Rock, his adaptation of John Lindsay's novel, director Peter Weir is telling the audience what kind of movie to expect, and yet it still feels radical anyway. As consumers of fiction, and as moviegoers especially, we have to have our questions answered. If something gets set up, then it must get paid off. To have a mystery that's unsolvable is a shock to the system and it elicits an almost visceral reaction, much like the scene toward the end of the film when a girl is attacked by her classmates for not giving them the information they desperately need to know. Picnic at Hanging Rock is the type of material that's typically resistant to screen adaptation. Film typically rewards lean, muscular narratives and satisfying conclusions. It doesn't so easily accommodate internal voices or abstraction, much less the heresies of intentional ambiguity. It also requires a special filmmaker to pull it off, someone with the ability to harness film's potential for symbolism and suggestion rather than literal-mindedness. And with this film, only his second after The Cars That Ate Paris, Weir set the standard for a new wave of Australian cinema that defied convention and turned the untamed landscape of the country itself to a primary character. So here's what definitely happens in Picnic at Hanging Rock. Almost definitely, anyway. On Valentine's Day 1900, a group of students from Appleyard College, a strict all-girls school in Victoria, are taken by Buggy for an outing at Hanging Rock, a remote geological formation deep into the countryside. Once they arrive at their destination, four students, led by the lovely yet eerily serene Miranda, strike out on their own to climb up the rock. They fall asleep. When they wake up, three of the four remove their shoes and tights and walk barefoot through a crevasse, never to be seen again. The fourth comes screaming down the rock, while a teacher, Ms. McCraw, is spotted ascending the rock herself also never to be seen again. The disappearance rattles the community. A student named Sarah, an orphan who is not allowed to join the picnic, is particularly crestfallen because of her infatuation with Miranda. The strict headmistress, Mrs. Appleyard, is dealing with frightened students and a wave of parents who want to pull them from school. A young man named Michael, who witnesses the girls' ascent that day, becomes so obsessed with finding them that he nearly dies trying. And when one of the missing girls comes back she cannot remember a single thing that happened. Picnic at Hanging Rock does not solve this mystery. There are no bodies to find and no trail to follow. And in the closing minutes, we're left to scratch our chins some more over an incident involving Sarah and Mrs. Appleyard. What we're left with is an allegorical coming-of-age story, with these missing girls choosing to reject the tight harnessing of their dresses and their souls, and follow this alluring, scary, mesmeric passage into womanhood. Beyond the sensual wildness of the natural setting, with its poisonous ants and venomous snakes, Weir isn't shy about emphasizing phallic and vaginal imagery, or the power a sexually confident woman like Miranda wields over both Sarah and Michael. The irony is that death, such as it goes, becomes associated with Appleyard College more than whatever happened at Hanging Rock. Sarah is not fortunate not to have gone to the picnic. She's merely left behind. The traditions that Mrs. Appleyard is trying to uphold at the school are arbitrary and cruel and destructive, alienating both students and teachers. And as the school withers away on the vine, there's a literal death at the end, and Mrs. Appleyard is discovered in her office in full morning attire. Watching Picnic at Hanging Rock. this time, I was reminded of a bit of narration from Adam O'Goyne's The Sweet Hereafter, a film about a small town that loses most of its children in a bus accident. The narration goes, quote, we're all citizens of a different town now. A place with its own special rules, its own special laws. End quote. The films seem to share an idea about a tragic event as a catalyst for change. Communities are reshaped and reformed into something else. Girls are not girls forever. Places like Apple Yard College cannot stay the same, and the 20th century is not going to be like the 19th. Weir captures the feeling of what it's like to be citizens of a different town now. <music> I hope you've learned your poetry, Sarah. Sit up straight, child. Hold your shoulders back. You're getting a dreadful stoop.
1: Well, have you got your lines by heart? Well, have you?
2: I can't. It doesn't make sense. Sense? You little ignoramus. Evidently you don't know that Mrs Felicia Haymans is
0: considered one of the finest of our English poets.
2: I know another piece of poetry by heart. It has ever so many verses, much more than The Wreck of the Hesperus. Would that do?
1: What is the name of this poem? An ode to Saint
2: Valentine.
1: I'm not acquainted with it. Where did you find it? I didn't find it. I wrote it. You wrote it?
0: Love abounds. And Sarah. Uh, no, thank you, Sarah. Strange as it may seem, I still prefer Mrs. Heyman's. So first question, of course, uh, what is your history with Picnic at Hanging Rock and how does it look in the year 2021?
1: I've seen this film a bunch of times now, although I don't think I saw it until it was released on DVD by Criterion, whenever that was. But it's a film i have come back to several times i'm a very I'm a, I'm a great admirer of this film and and uh i uh you know if you asked me to tell you what was going on or explain it to you i i i, and I never could and that's not really a
0: problem for me <laughs> I, I i'm really afraid to break this to you but but we're going to ask you that stuff <laughs> no
1: you know what I, I i'm very comfortable with this film being one of no uh you know the sentence of this film never closes. there's no period at the end of it there's there's no punctuation this is this is uh It's a film not to be talked about in many ways, but not necessarily one. It it resists the the sort of the internet era desire to be decoded and understood in in that way.
2: Yeah, I wouldn't even like call it a a sentence because that implies like more structure than I think, you know, is is, uh, evident here. It's more like it's kind of like an E.E. Cummings poem, you know, (laughs) (laughs) of of, of, of a movie. But uh, yeah, this is a movie I hadn't seen before and have been wanting to catch up with for a, a long time. Uh, I, I do remember editing your review of it back at the Dissolve, Keith. So you did it at one point to explain what what happened in it to to some extent in, in, in review form. But yeah, it was one that I was always really curious and eager to catch up with in part because I had... Uh, heard over the years, maybe in that review, maybe elsewhere, that it was a big influence on Sofia Coppola, particularly uh, <laughs> the, the the Virgin Suicides and uh, Marie Antoinette, which are probably my two favorite uh, Coppola films. Sorry, Lost in Translation, but that's mm-hmm. me. And, you know, I'm a sucker for any movie where women wear gloves and straw hats. So it was, you know, it, it definitely seemed like a, a movie that I, that I should see. But it's also a movie that I feel you need to, it invites a certain frame of mind. And uh, here's where I will admit that I was probably not in the best frame of mind for this to be my, my first viewing of uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock, in part because I was viewing it through the context of this pairing and looking for connections and looking for things to, to talk about rather than just sitting there and experiencing it. And I think that is almost certainly a better way to experience this film for the first time than, you know, in a sort of like studying capacity, not that there's nothing there to study, you know, there's certainly a, a lot of uh, thematic interpretation that your brain kind of has to do as as, as you watch. But, you know, I don't know that I, I wanted to be doing that thematic interpretation as my first introduction to this film, because it is so beautiful. And it is so kind of almost visceral in its appeal and in its horror. You know, I, I think like this does kind of function as, as a type of horror film, albeit one that I am very capable of, <laughs> of sitting through. But yeah, I think the impulse to graft meaning onto it for the purposes of having a discussion about it kind of makes it more difficult to engage with on that more kind of elemental level that I think this film probably needs.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I um, in terms of history, I mean, this was one that I saw quite a long time ago. You have discover certain movements, you discover the, the Australian New Wave, and and uh, you work your way through some of the major films. And this is, you know, one of the you know seminal works of that era and that of Australian cinema. So uh, I was naturally uh, drawn to it, but it has been a, had been quite a while. And you know, as far as the, I mean, we'll get into the the pairing later. But you know, after seeing, you know, we we kind of did this on a we had read good reviews of the Dry, and then some of those reviews had mentioned Picnic at Hanging Rock, so it was kind of like, "This is it. This is our chance to do Picnic at <laughs> Hanging Rock. Let's do it." And none of us had actually seen the Dry, and I also, like you, uh, Genevieve, saw the Dry first before I revisited Picnic at Hanging Rock, and you know, m- my impression was like, "Well, you know, there are ways they connect, in ways with they- which they absolutely have nothing in common at all, and um, in terms of their approach." So I think I was able to abandon that. A little bit and kind of Mm -hmm. give in a bit to Picnic and Hangarock because Picnic and Hangarock is so Immediately announces itself as a much more abstract experience right right from that opening bit of narration that I Mentioned in the keynote. So (laughs) In any case, I really love this movie I love movies that are by filmmakers who have the ability to pull off something like this because this is such a literary Concede. I mean, it is. It is not at all shocking to learn that it's based on a novel. You would assume as much because it's not. You know, there are not a lot of filmmakers who are that naturally given to this type of abstraction. And, you know, and I appreciate how much it sticks to it and, and the feeling that it gives you watching it. It's visceral. I think, Genevieve, you're right in in, in using that word to describe the film and. Uh, insuggestive and, and, and I just, I you know, I, I find it interesting. Interesting the way that, you know, the, the action that happens at The Rock and then also the contrast between that and the action within the school itself, particularly with, with Sarah and Mrs. Appleyard and all these very strong themes of repression and, and, and liberation and, you know, sexuality. It's all very, it's nice to kind of like consider those ideas in this kind of suggestive way and not in a way that kind of hits you over the head that much.
2: Yeah. I think maybe more than any, pairing we've done or any film we've done in since the pandemic started like this is one that i really really wished i was able to see in a theater not that i would have been able to see it in a theater most likely if there if there hadn't been a pandemic but like you know i I think like i've gotten pretty good at home viewing and not sort of like letting the fact that i'm watching in my living room you know affect my my viewing experience too much but this is one that like I really wished I had been able to watch it with the outside world more closed off and been able to just kind of like really zoom in to this like film's wavelength and it's sort of dreamy feeling that I it's hard to tap into when I'm, you know, watching on on my couch while, You know, someone falls asleep next to me.
0: (laughs) Uh. (laughs) And it reminds me so much. I mean, you know, it reminds me of the most cinematic movie I can think of, which is 2001 A Space Odyssey. That, you know, the rock itself, when Mm -hmm. we're in its presence, the soundtrack offers up that monolith humming noise. You know, that strange alien thing, which is like, this is more than just an interesting geological outcropping. This is something mysterious and dangerous and and transformative and so yeah i mean it naturally is going to recall a movie like that and 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 it's you know it's so reliant on cinematic effect you know i mean it's not it's not a film that's gonna kill that's gonna like wow it's not a film about the dialogue and it's not a film you know it's not a sentence it's an ellipses or however you want to talk about it (laughs) and all of that stuff definitely suggests that the big screen would be good so i've certainly i've never seen this film yeah
2: projected uh no, there's, some,
1: there's so many films that i would I, i've never seen projected that i'd love to and this definitely would be high on that list
2: for the sound too like the mm-hmm. uh like, like gallipoli which we also covered on the podcast and also like talked about it's an un- unusual score like this definitely has i mean it has some very traditional elements in its score but it also has some very uh un- unusual ones but there's this sort of you know a- electronic uh humming that that reappears throughout it and i don't know if it was you know the TBI was watching on or the the hbo max transfer or maybe that, that's, that's how it was supposed to be but it had that like real low-end buzz that you get mm-hmm. sometimes you, you know and i like it may have been intentional, but I feel like it probably wasn't. And, you know, I think just, again, sort of speaking to what Weir does with like the tools of filmmaking. You know, this is two films now of his that we've done that have very, very interesting soundtracks. And I worry I didn't get the, the full effect of it watching it on, on streaming at home.
1: I have nice speakers. I have like like a fancy sound system, except for Ooh. my subwoofer, which is a song I bought from Radio Shack twenty years ago. And this <laughs> this, this film was pushing that to the limit. <laughs> at, at times. Wait, wait,
0: you're saying you're you're saying that Radio Shack uh, uh, sold you a disappointing piece? Of <laughs> uh, it
1: was it, it was what I could afford at the time, and I've never felt I'm, I'm not such an audio file that I need to upgrade it, or, or the or or, or or should I? Readers, let me know, or listeners, let me know. <laughs> oh, I'm sure
0: they will. <laughs> uh, so, so you know. Weir once said that a potential distributor at a screening for the film threw his coffee cup at the end because it was a mystery without a solution. Uh, What was your reaction? Uh, did, Did you feel agitated by not knowing what happened?
2: I didn't feel agitated or upset in part because I, I knew going in that there was no resolution here. I knew that that was going to be like sort of the the big contrast point in, in, in this pairing. So I wasn't like expecting to have the mystery solved. And I think if I was, then I could definitely see having a, an adverse reaction to, to the ending here. But I still didn't find the ending... Well, to say I didn't find it satisfying kind of feels uh, <laughs> redundant. But hearing about what happened to Mrs. Appleyard, just like in voiceover at the end, I, it feels like there's a beat missing or again, there's that, it's that period, you know, but it's that missing period or it's, it's that ellipses. But there's like, it feels like there's something really important in that ellipses that we didn't necessarily need you know, dug into in any meaningful way, but I feel maybe could have been presented in a more There's a real uh, poochie died on his way back to his home planet. So yeah, yeah, exactly. It feels it. it feels very post scripty. I think that's completely
0: fair. especially because I think that the ending is already so suggestive of death, and we get that shot of or scene of, of Mrs. Appleyard very mysteriously, mm-hmm. you know, dressed the way she is in her office. I mean, I think that
2: I don't even think we needed the the postscript of what happened to right, her. Like, I right. think I like mean, her it, her being catatonic and mourning, where with her, the school that bears her name essentially being a done deal, yeah. is, I mean, is evocative as death. It's more evocative of death than a voiceover telling yep. us she, uh, she was found dead.
0: Yeah, and I also I wonder if like it felt imposed. It, it may it may it maybe I, you know, I haven't read anything to that that effect, but it did seem like maybe the distributor maybe somebody other than peter weir was like you got you've got to give them something you've got to give them some piece of information at the end here just without uh you know about what you know what happened to these characters even even tell even telling the audience that they weren't found would be at least some kind of conclusion Uh, but i think you're right i i don't think putting that piece of information in the voiceover at the end services the film at all, because it it does such an elegant job, you know, kind of landing the story where it does for her.
1: I can't speak to that detailed. I do know that we're did rework the last act quite a bit. A lot of the stuff with uh, the visions of Miranda, the dream sequence, and the way everyone's kind of seems to be caught up in sort of this dream state uh, with visions of her uh, was an addition after they screened it the first time, Uh, which I you know I don't know what it looked like before, but I I do love all that stuff. So I think that that was that was a fine addition. Mm -hmm. Uh, I try I can't cast my mind back to how I reacted the first time I saw this beyond really liking it, but uh, knowing what I I know now I. I find, you know, some of the pleasure of the film is, is watching Weir and the film. Tease viewers a little bit, like you know, su- suggests things that look like they're going to clear something up, and then then go in another direction. There's a lot of faint, you know, uh, fainting F-E-I-N-T in, in this, uh, uh, in, in, in the way the story is told. I mean, it is kind of darkly playful in a way. If you realize you're not going to get any answers, I think I think part of the enjoyment comes from from knowing that and, and seeing how uh, it kind of messes with 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 viewers.
2: Yeah, and it's worth remembering that you know this also opens with a card telling us exactly what we're about to see happen mm-hmm. in a very you know uh, straightforward uh, and and fact based way. You know, I think that makes me think the sort of voiceover because uh, it's the co- the detective or. Cop constable, I don't know what you would even <laughs> when you even call him uh, here, but uh, it's his voice, right? That that says it. I, I think I,
1: I believe so. Yes.
2: Yeah. So like having those two very, very like just the facts, ma'am, bookends. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, having those as as bookends kind of feels like a, again sort of almost almost cheeky, uh, you know, move and sort of uh, you know suggesting that there's an answer here and then giving us a film where we don't get that answer.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other thing too, uh, is that, I mean, obviously the girls who were at the school, the survivors are stressed out and agitated by this mystery. I mean, everyone who survives is, but I think as viewers do, we don't necessarily feel like the disappeared have gone to a worse place somehow <laughs> you know like we don't f- it doesn't seem like their fate is death or worse than death it's, it feels like it's like like it's the opposite of that or it's, it's more of of a again sort of change or transition or something i mean obviously they're not around so that that maybe that <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah but that is that's a, de- a negative but you know what i mean i mean it doesn't feel mm-hmm. you know it doesn't feel tragic to us what happens to them or at least it didn't feel tragic to me
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, all the imagery is of ascent and sort of like, you know, uh, getting beyond the earth and certainly like taking off the stockings, you know, this daring move of taking off the stockings is, is casting off, uh, you know, a very visible sign of restriction, although one certainly we wouldn't blink twice about today, <laughs> Today, of course. Uh, and, and that makes the case of Irma so so peculiar, like wherever it is she was, she's not there anymore and has no memory of it. That whole development is is really fascinating to me. And and, and as is the scene where she is publicly shunned by the other girls um just a a really scary moment
2: have either of you done any reading up on the uh the excised final chapter of the novel
1: I, just a little. I, I saw that, you know, I, I I knew about this and I refreshed my memory uh, yeah. you know, before this recording and I, I know that it existed and I, there's a plot description of it on Wikipedia and I, I kind of don't want to read it. You know, I kind of <laughs> don't want the, oh. it, whatever it was in my head. <laughs> you, go ahead. You can, you can yeah, say well, it.
2: Well, I, I just, I think it's worth bringing up in the context of this question about like if the, you know, end of this is, is satisfying or how we feel about not knowing what would happen because, so the story is that uh, Joan Lindsay, who, who wrote the novel. Apparently, she always maintained that it came to her in a dream, basically. Um, And she was always, it sounds like very cagey uh, about the line between fact and and fiction in in, in the book. But uh, her her, uh, publisher, her editor, uh, was the one who suggested taking out the final chapter and letting it end on a a note of ambiguity, which uh, I think uh, everyone agrees was the right move. But uh, it was agreed that the uh, final chapter could be published posthumously after uh, Lindsay's death and uh, it was published as the secret of Hanging Rock um, mm. and so you know there there was a an ending written to this and I haven't read it, it in Lindsay's words nor have I read the the original novel but I did find a summary on the website Little White Lies that I think is worth reading just as a sort of illustration of what kind of answer we we might have gotten here <laughs> if we desire. So the the article on little White Lies this reads, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, rather than closing the mystery, it opens up another deeper one. The last chapter sees the missing mathematics mistress reappear, a semi-clothed clown woman who the girls don't seem to recognize as their teacher. She speaks in prophetic statements, then transforms herself into a crab and enters a time warp. Two girls willingly follow her into the portal. One remains and returns to the school with no recollection of the fateful afternoon. So, oh,
1: wow. so that's, that's, <laughs> Obviously, that's what happened, right? <laughs> It's like
0: the Laura Palmer's diaries all over again, isn't it? Like, like people need some kind of answer, and so you have this this very weird supplemental material that kind of surfaces. So, so I kind of want to dig into some of the characters a little bit, some of whom are are almost you know symbolic, and other others maybe uh, we can kind of. M- more grasped multidimensionally but but um you know the object of infatuation here is is Miranda uh, what w- what did you make of that character and what she signifies
2: i think it's who sofia Kobola was paying the most attention to when she got inspired for virgin suicides mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, obviously she's stunning to look at. She's, she's angelic. She's a Botticelli, you you, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of very attractive people in this movie. And I think maybe in Australia, (laughs) generally, (laughs) um, if I, if I may make such a blanket statement, We love to flatter Uh, our
0: Australian (laughs) listeners.
1: (laughs) You're jumping to connections too soon. Yeah. Right.
2: (laughs) Pretty people connection. But I mean, it's, Definitely a a role that requires more than just being... Beautiful to look at. I think she has to project a certain sort of remove from the girls around her. Like even in those those opening scenes at the at the school when the you know the girls are all kind of giddy and excited for their uh, outing, when Miranda tells Sarah, "You must learn to love someone other than me. I I won't be here much longer." You know, like even like that statement and the way she says it, I feel like immediately kind of places her at this like I said, a a remover or like she, she knows something. She has some sort of foreknowledge or, you know, she, she's just operating on a, on a different level an ethereal level, perhaps, you know, that in at that point in very sharp contrast to all the other girls we see, you know, giddy over the Valentine's day, day festivities. So, and, and we're certainly amps up that feeling and how he films her and all the slow motion and whatnot, but, you know, it's, it's there in in the performance too.
0: I mean there there's this kind of ser- a serene self-confidence mm, to yeah. to her that she mm. is able to project and I think she's able to do that because as that line suggests she kind of knows what's going to happen <laughs> you know you know and I think that it's a literal disappearance in the film but but I think we can read it uh, you know a, as this transition into womanhood, womanhood that that, yeah. that in maturity that Sarah is ill equipped or, or unable to make w- with her to sort of join her in that transition. You know, and in a weird way I was just kind of rethinking my this idea of it not being tragic that they disappear because of Miranda who seems to know but the I guess maybe the thing that might be tragic about it is is that where they're going and what they want to be and what they are transitioning into has no place, you know, in the world in which they 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 live, right? The the, the type of expression that they that they're Showing the sensuality that it, it's all very um, it doesn't fit into a world in which, you know, they're shown, <laughs> you know, tightening each other's dresses. <laughs>
2: Right. Well, and you and you can see it illustrated again when when Irma returns and uh, once she is you know uh, well again and is leaving and uh, she's like presented to her classmates. Uh, not only is she wearing bright red, which I mean I think it doesn't get more symbolic than that if you're viewing this as an allegory about you know sexuality or womanhood or variety of related <laughs> themes there, but the way that the girls react to her, which is basically swarming her and yelling her and resenting her you know like she is no longer a part of this world she can't return to it
0: so what about the people who are at appleyard college who don't go on this trip uh, particularly sarah and, and mrs appleyard that is more in the realm of conventional drama right i mean what what do you make of these characters
2: I mean, I love Mrs. Appleyard's hairdo. <laughs> not, not only was it, uh, you know, uh, structural, but I think it was symbolic.
1: <laughs> uh, how, yeah. how, as, as an aside, the how, hair how, has a lot to do with it. How old do you think Rachel Roberts was when she made this movie?
2: Oh, just because I'm like familiar with how women over the age of 30 get ridiculously aged up in film, I'm going to say... I'm gonna say my age. I'm gonna say 37.
1: No, older. She's my age. Like she's like 47, okay. 48, okay. which is basically oh. also Eric. Eric see, not to, you, not to jump ahead with the connections, but also Eric Bana's age. <laughs> the drive. What uh, One is what's presenting it a little more fun see, than the other? You are
0: you, were, but, you were setting us up with a with a mama's family situation. <laughs> People love it when we make references to Mama's <laughs> favorite show. Family. Drop it. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right, so so so, but, so, so, so Keith, let, let's go back to Apple Yard College and, and well, talk about it. Well, I think it's,
1: there's there's a whole drama playing out between Mrs. Apple Yard and and Sarah. That, that obviously we see the beginning and middle and end of, but but almost. Don't see all the details in between, uh, like I, I. We don't even know for sure, unless I miss something, why Sarah is held back. Other than she is there as uh, as a kind of borderline charity case, so she doesn't necessarily get all the French benefits of, of the college. If I if I'm if, is that? Do you want to have a I different? I think
0: that's true. I think that's well, right. I,
2: I oh, guess I, some... I took it more that she was being punished just because of that scene where Missus Appleyard mm. was like getting her or you know making her memorize. A uh, poem or, or something, and she was, you know, trying to write her yeah. own, and clearly not being a, a diligent or, or um, respectful student. So it, it struck me more as a, a punishment, but also probably one informed by Mrs. Appleyard's uh, obvious dislike of Sarah, which I think can very easily be tied to her status as a, a scholarship or, or charity case.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating character. It's almost like she's she's more of the trying to rebel. Intellectually, rather than the—if—if mm-hmm. if we call what happens to the other other girls a rebellion, it's—it's—it's it's, it's, again as with as with several other elements of this film, it's a tough—it's tough to read, <laughs> but I mean there is the, the whole. You know, way that character is punished, and 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 I, I think by the end, uh, you, know, you can safely say abused is is uh, an unflattering element of of, of the general situation is presenting, which is uh, you know the turn late you know late Victorian, early twentieth century mores, morals, ideas of, of womanhood, uh, but also you know the this the way these ideas play up against this land that's totally unreceptive to them or on, inhospitable to to this very um, buttoned-up Victorian view of the world. I mean, to me, that's, that's such a brilliant contrast in this film is we have all these characters that are... Behaving as if they're in, in an environment that they're not. This is, you know, this trip to the wild, you know, just really emphasizes the fact that they are they're invaders in the, in this land. Um, I mean, I almost wish the narration there. There wasn't. I almost it was not a narration, but I also wish there wasn't a line of dialogue comparing them to ants on the hill, because I find just visually the images of those girls and then the teachers uh, on the hill. Uh, you know, it, a few shots after ants crawling over a piece of pastry, and the sense that each one. Is able, each creature you're seeing there is able to con- comprehend their understandings equally as well, that they that they may as well be ants, that, that they really are newcomers to this place. I mean, that, to me, that's one of the most uh, you know, really compelling parts of this film.
2: Yeah and so much of that comes out in the in the visual language like as as you mentioned like not necessarily wanting it, the ants on a hill thing things spelled out like there mm-hmm. there's so many moments in in this film where sort of the contrast between this Rigid, buttoned-up British Victorian "quote-unquote" high-class sensibility is is contrasted against the the wild landscape and Missus um, uh, Appleyard's hair. You know, I, I was joking about it, but I do think that that is you know, and just her whole look is very uh, evocative of uh, the sensibility that these girls who disappear on the rock are literally escaping from, you you know, an apple yard, the school itself. It's just like giant imposing monolithic box, you know, structure and very elegant and, you know, rich looking, but contrasted next to Hanging Rock, this other giant looming monolith that is, you know, just all again phallic but also just you know very like natural and rugged and uh, kind of unknowable like you don't know where it begins and ends it's just it couldn't be more different from this very geometric cube of a school you know Absolutely.
0: Yeah. i think with sarah i think we need a character like that to sort of ground the film in a way that none of these other characters do that that everyone else even even mrs appleyard seem symbolic in a way that Sarah isn't Sarah there's a complexity to that character to her desires for her inability to express those desires to her situation her social class you know and, and just like that that tragic inability to pursue what she wants and to be stuck in the situation that is ultimately fatal for her to to where she can't move on you know and that and that is played in a more conventional way that gives the film a different dimension and a necessary dimension.
2: There's also some male characters yeah. in this uh, film that I don't think we've we've brought up yeah, once Michael. maybe maybe yeah. Yeah. yeah Michael and also uh Al- Albert is that it or what?
0: his friend or is it a bro- friend right friend and, and also f- I, I believe
2: there's Sarah-
1: servant in a way right i mean yeah I,
2: yeah I, be, I believe a valet is yeah. the is mm. the term uh yeah Albert and also uh Sarah's brother apparently like we there's oh, like there, one, one, one line in, yeah 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 no, that, that, no, that <laughs> a, twi- a that twist that you could entirely miss and has no consequence yeah <laughs> uh, to the story at
0: all yeah it does kind of feel like it has some third act issues that are <laughs> on that front too because it is that d- does seem like a revelation that's supposed to hit harder hit at all I mean, you could miss it you know you could miss that fact completely
2: I will admit that I don't think I would have caught it if I hadn't read the Wikipedia summary after.
0: (laughs) That's not a good, (laughs) not a good sign, but Michael and Sarah are kind of on the same page in terms of their interest in Miranda. Um, And just there, you know, there's kind of a obsession that both of them share. Uh, I mean, obviously Michael is late to that obsession, but he follows through on it, (laughs) you know, as far as he possibly can do.
2: Yeah. I mean, it, Seems like Michael, and again, I'm like trying to, you know, translate this all through the sort of allegorical nature of this film, and like what each character is supposed to represent, not who they <laughs> necessarily are, are as a character. But he's he's British, right? He and his family are like mm-hmm. British Army because is that his father or his uncle is a, it's it's a it's Colonel, his uncle, and, uncle and
1: aunt. So I don't know what's yeah. you know I think he's really another parentless or or parent or he's someone another character removed from his parents as, as yeah. all the girls are. But,
2: you know, even just like in his dress and his, you know, top hat and tails and everything like he's he feels very sort of evocative of British sort of high class chivalry, you know, whatever. There's that scene early in the film where he and Albert, you know, watch the girls cross the creek and Albert's, uh, you know, kind of making some li- li- lascivious comments. And uh, did you and know, by Michael- the way,
1: that those legs go all the way up to the bum? <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah and 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 Michael's just like you know a little like he's he's not there for that discussion so it feels like sort of his desire to rescue these girls is sort of born out of one to sort of bring them back to the cultural paradigm that they are escaping you know uh, symbolically and literally here well, I
0: see i would inter- i would have interpreted it a little bit differently than that because i think mm-hmm. i think what he's saying is not what he's feeling there. I think that there is, you know, an obsession and, and a lust, I guess, that he's sort of following through on rather than an impulse to retrieve them from, uh, yeah. or, or rescue them from. So maybe
2: he was like trying to follow them and for whatever reason, wasn't able to.
0: Well, I mean, just he, but he's a watcher, right? He's interested in them. It's a it's like, you know, kind of a gazy, impulse to just watch i mean we we, we, we witnessed that in our last pairing with rear window you know you just you know that that's there's there's an excitement to that you know and especially for someone who may be you know shy and inexperienced but kind of you know showing an interest and and, and kind of an obsession uh, that certainly his valet does not <laughs> share. Sure.
2: Yeah and I, and I mean I guess he's also kind of representative of the desire for and for answers you know so that, that, that this movie doesn't fulfill either so I, you know it's a character like like many characters in this film that I think are sort of operating on different symbolic levels.
0: So given how allegorical the film is it's heavily reliant on peter weir's direction to bring it some life and of course you know as much as this film you know influenced a director like sophia coppola this is a film directed by a a man and 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 so there is that aspect to it as well so i'm just curious what what stood out to you about the style of the film about what peter weir brings to the table
1: well, I mean, it's it's very sensual. There, there's a on the Criterion Channel. There's a short interview with Patton Oswalt uh, talking about how it kind of has a soft porn look to it. I mean, uh, though it's just sort of very uh, soft focus and and lingering over. Uh, you know these, you know, girls in repose, and and so on and so forth. I mean, it doesn't go in that direction. Um, and you know, on the same same criterion channel feature, there's there's a, uh, Kristen Thompson talks about how you know it, it veers into horror movie territory. Doesn't come doesn't come back. There's just this all another another genre, obviously driven by by the gaze and and, and looking and uh, and the voyeurism aspects of of watching a movie. So you know, but it, it doesn't commit to any of those. And uh, in, 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 I think that's part of what makes it um, such an odd film.
2: I already spoke about the sound of the film, which I think sort of contributes to, you know, at times the feeling that this is a little like a horror movie, but it also has, you know, a really romantic score at sometimes and a very mm-hmm. British score at sometimes, you, you know, like I think it uh, like, like so much of the movie, the the music is kind of operating on, on different levels and, and, and evoking different things at, at different times. Um, is this
1: where we talk about Zomphir? Is it time to talk about Zamfir, <laughs> the master of the pan flute? Oh, well,
2: that's right. <laughs> uh, I,
1: mean, are you, are you, I mean, everyone knows that this was the pan flute is provided by George Zamfir, who is a, a uh, Romanian um, mm-hmm. musician. Who you might have been a little young to miss this, but Scott and I saw his albums. They were like advertised on television do you remember these scott remember <laughs> I, 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 Is it i'm just sure me? it'd be like
0: one of those like things where if i saw it it would just bring back every possible memory of where i was uh, you know oh sure
1: okay well this was all right for for people who don't remember or were too young or whatever uh on late night television the, you know they would sell this album called Zomphir, master the pound flute and, and it was just be Zomphir playing his his haunting music and it was,
2: it was always <laughs> pretty cheesy looking, you know, yeah. um, but it sounds vaguely familiar. I I, I can, I'm sure it's on YouTube. Yeah.
1: We could, we can link to it or something. Yeah. But, or uh, there's
2: probably like an SNL sketch of it or something that I've seen. Oh, <laughs> yeah.
1: undoubtedly. It was much parody at the time. I mean, it yeah. was the sort of, I think it was pre Susan Powder era late, late oh. infomercial, but, but uh, so, you know, it, some fear was a punchline for a while there. But you know his he's his batting average when it comes to film scores is is incredible because I I I love the score, I love his contributions to Ennio Morricone's score for Once Upon a Time in America. There's a passage that turns up in Kill Bill, and I've never seen it, but he does a score to um, the tall blonde man with one one black shoe, whatever became the the man with one red shoe here in the states. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is, but uh, but you know, I, I think whatever cheesiness he had at that cultural moment, I think you know, his, he'll most likely be remembered more for his contributions here and and to a few other films uh, than than that, or not? Maybe he just mastered the band flute. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Another thing I wanted to bring up uh, related to the, the style, and this is uh, visual, but are either of you uh, familiar with the detail of, of how Weir and uh, his cinematographer Russell Boyd uh, achieved this sort of soft glowing look of a lot of those shots?
1: Yes, but why don't you tell us? <laughs> <laughs> I don't
2: know. <laughs> uh, they, uh, they're they bridal veils of various thicknesses. They uh, went uh, into a bridal shop and, wor- and ordered various pieces of wedding veil. So, uh, you know, a very sort of practical solution, but I think it, I, I find it amusing and I, I bring it up because I think like even on this, what would this be? a uh, a metatextual level, you know, there, yeah. there's there's symbolism happening here, <laughs> sort, sort of, <laughs> yeah. uh, with with it being specifically bridal fabric in this, uh, through which we gaze at the, these virginal women uh, is escaping the the trappings of society and whatnot. I think it's uh, I. I can't go so far as to say that was like intentional but i i would guess that someone made a comment on it at some point in the filmmaking <laughs>
0: yeah. hey wait a minute so you you've, you've allowed all the the symbolism to just tap to be part of the equipment yeah. of the film uh that is pretty great whatever they do it does it does achieve a gorgeous you know cinematic effect and the, the sound is important and the images are just they recalled what Terrence Malick was doing at the time. Um, I guess we would have been doing it just the once at this point, mm-hmm. right? Cause, uh, days of heaven hadn't come out, but there is the same focus on nature, the same, you know, shots of flora and, and, and fauna, you know, they kind of give this, um, world, some verdancy in life. That, those are unusual touches. And I just think there's uh, the, the amount of confidence that he shows just to make a film like this as his second i mean i guess i guess uh sophia did hers as her, her <laughs> first so she's even more confident but like th- this is you know audacious and and um i think when you look at the films that he did afterwards there's a lot of interesting similarities to how important the environment is i mean he's obviously an outdoorsy kind of Filmmaker, but even in a movie like uh, the Truman Show, which is, you know, environment is important in that because it's all artificial. It's all this sort of hermetic and and you long to kind of break out of it. And uh, in here, I think it's a very inviting atmosphere as much as it is filled with danger It is as much. I mean, as many people who die and disappear. In this movie, the atmosphere of the film itself is not uninviting. It's it's, uh, and there are times when it just is painterly. I mean, those shots mm-hmm. of of the schoolgirls and the teachers with their little umbrellas on the uh, at the base of the rock. You know, sort of lounging around. I mean, that just you just could put that in a museum, right? It's like so uh, gorgeous.
2: I mean, I I, I gather that they were explicitly inspired by Australian Impressionism. For the visual look of of this, there's even again going back to the Wikipedia page, uh, which I promise I, I read things other than the Wikipedia page about this <laughs> well, movie. They're, 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 it leads out to other stuff. Yeah, they're just all collected there, but but mm-hmm. to the point that there is like actually a, a picture of a of a painting by Frederick McCubbin, uh, an Australian impressionist, to sort of illustrate what uh, was the visual inspiration here. Mm.
0: So we we're really bearing down in, into the small. <laughs> Details here. So, uh, why don't we hold off and talk a little bit more later about Picnic at Hanging Rock next week uh, in relation to the dry and uh, move on to feedback? Now it's time for feedback, where we answer any questions and respond to any comments about our episodes or anything else in the world of film. First up is an email from Eric from New Brunswick, Canada, about the threat to physical media. Genevieve, do you want to take this one?
2: Sure. Sure. Eric writes, As someone who loves going to movies, I've certainly been part of the chorus pining for the post pandemic return of the theater going experience. But as someone who also likes collecting movies, I've been troubled with how the ever increasing focus on streaming services appears to be taking a toll on the production of physical media. Whether it's produced for streaming films like The Ballad of Buster Scrugs, and I'm thinking of ending things, that don't appear to have DVD Blu ray versions in their immediate future, or theatrically released favorites from the last year like The Empty Man or St. Maud that are only parked on the streamers, the inevitability of a film getting a physical release seems increasingly evitable. I'm curious if any of you have been or are still currently maintaining movie collections, and even if you aren't, if you have any feelings about the film archive becoming ever more ephemeral. Keith?
0: <laughs> we definitely have feelings, Eric. Thank you for teeing this one up.
1: Uh, yeah,
2: sure. I was actually just looking to see if there is a
1: Blu-ray of Saint Maud, and is, but but not for Region One. Uh, and the fact that I'm talking about Region One uh, uh, <laughs> probably answers your question. Like, yes, I do still maintain a uh, a film collection. I, I there was a period in, in the high of the DVD era when, like, it was a movie. Uh, that I liked, I would buy it, you know, and I don't do that anymore. But also that was an era in which movies that came out of any significance usually had, you know, Felt like you were buying like the critical edition of something with all kinds of uh, extra supplementary stuff, and it was you weren't just getting the film; you were getting like sort of um, a way to study the film, and that uh, that appealed. But I do I look for the any excuse to buy uh, for, for as part of work. I will I will buy a Blu-ray uh, at the merest uh, need. I'm we I'm waiting to upgrade my. You know we we were doing a Shining episode a while ago, and I was like, oh, you know, I probably will need the 4K edition of that. Before I could watch it again, you know, you can't watch it anything but the most optimal format available. Um, but no, <laughs> I, I, I think it's important, though. I mean, I used my, I have. I, at some point, they, my collection became too big for shelves, so I have a fairly selective uh, bit there. But I and I, I kept all the pamphlets, uh, but I threw away most of the cases and and, and filed the discs away in a, in a couple of of suitcase like trunks that I use all the time. I mean, I, I find it completely invaluable to have uh, that kind of thing. I but I think you're right that uh, you know the era of inevitable physical media releases is over. Um, I think with the Netflix deal, we're, we're lucky that a few like the Scorsese films and the Quran and, and Roma uh, and a few other Netflix things are getting releases through Criterion, but that just seems like kind of a special sweetheart deal kind of, kind of thing. So I'd say collect them when you, while you can, I I forget at one point, I, uh, Oliver Stone, who was never wrong about anything, obviously talked about Blu-rays as the, the, you know, get them while you can, because it's the last physical format that that you're going to, that you're going to have. So um, I, I, I'm, I'm all for that. I I miss (laughs) it. I, and you know, we're gonna do a whole episode on on way streaming services are work and don't work for people who who love movies. But um um you that's know That's on the Patreon. Yes. Right. Subscribe. Yeah, exactly. But um, you know, it, it's certainly you can get you can romanticize it. And you kind of forget all the all the ways there are pains in the asses, but you know there's something about a video store that wasn't beholden to rights. Like you know, imagine a video store where you could only get Disney films; it wouldn't last very long. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But, but now that's kind of the situation we're in with these streaming services, where you kind of have to go from service to service to get what you want. And I don't know. Uh, I think there's some there's some downsides to that. Let's, let's let's just leave it there.
0: Yeah, I mean you're paying for visitation rights on a lot of this stuff. I mean if it's just if it just exists. As Eric says, if the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, or I'm thinking of any things, which are films by major filmmakers, mm-hmm. just exist on Netflix, or the Bash Brothers Experience, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, talking about, I was like thinking about, what am I? Why am I even subscribing to Netflix? Oh yeah, I need visitation rights to the Bash Brothers Experience. <laughs> um, you know, for when you, you need
2: to shake four halves of butt.
0: Yeah. <laughs> what an incredible uh, line. Ah, so good. I just, it's been silk robes and kimonos for, for, for me all, all week long seeing that song. Anyway, um, yeah, but I mean, and it's been extremely encouraging to see Netflix collaborate with Criterion on some of its major releases just because it's like springing it from jail, <laughs> these films. Like these films can now exist in physical form. Nobody can control them, take them away, you know, demand. X amount of money per month for you to have visitation rights, you know, and then the format is is better. Blue rays a blue base is still a superior format to streaming, and and uh, um, you know, I mean, whether you care that much about the difference between the two is is obviously a, an open question. But um, but I I lament it, and, and you know, and I'm and I'm part of that. Uh, you know, I'm to blame to somewhat to the for the diminishment of, of physical media. I I do buy films on occasion or and get fil- asked for films as 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 gifts and get, get and, but there was a time you know when i was at the av club and at the dissolve when we were just on that kind of gravy mm-hmm. train right and getting and. all getting all of those criterions and shout factory releases and and so i i amassed this incredible this huge collection you know that i have entirely in my in a filing system in my garage, I'm not even done filing yet. Which much to the,
1: sh- my, my are you? Are you ten years in this project at this point? Scott? Yeah,
0: unfortunately, I am. But it's <laughs> it's
1: very really hard to, I, like, I, I, to do. All I prepared I down and finished mine during during the pandemic. And it was it yeah, was but, good, you're, but you're you yeah. you know
0: you're 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 very good with the stick to of intuitiveness <laughs> and the and the and the drive. And me, yeah, I just get kind of lazy, but.
1: I I will say this. There is a little bit where the ones that are still around are really good. Like Criterion Remains... Excellent, yeah. and, and I'm happy to remain on their mailing list. <laughs> and, 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 they're uh, doing, and they're still doing, uh, um, they're
0: still doing, still doing great discs. A lot of special features, and they're making, a, uh, doing a lot. And Shout Factory as well. So Shout Factory they, is great, you know,
1: and um, yeah, um, Arrow, uh, which you know is is a British company, but they, their stuff is distributed here, is also really good.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think when it when it all comes down to it, Kino, I mean,
1: Kino Lorber, Kino uh, KL Studio Classics, also we can talk
0: about. But I mean, one the, of the, these things have in common. I think we're also seeing this is a larger discussion we can't get into now. What we're seeing with theaters that are coming back i think there's a there's a huge a niche that exists now for physical media and for you know art house films and that sort of thing but they're very strong you know they're very devoted they're not going to pa- just they're not going to move right and that, and that makes a difference that's how that's how records exist
1: yeah i was going to say blue rays are like the 180 gram vinyl reissues now yep. you which know
2: how- vinyl outsold was it cds that last year like yeah. like oh, yeah. yeah like vinyl was like the the most popular uh physical music form uh in 2020 or something that's like
1: that. But I, I so, still have C- I still have CDs. I I bought a CD player for the first time in a while off of, of <laughs> Craigslist. A CD <laughs> player, unfair.
0: Keith. How about that? What you, and cassettes? What about? How are you doing with the cassettes? Are you? I have bring, a cassette are you player those too. Back?
1: Uh, <laughs> no, but I, I do. <laughs> I, did, did, I I, like, I a couple years ago, I was at a garage sale, and I was like, wow, that's a sweet cassette deck and i got it for five dollars and i got it home i was like well, what am i gonna do with the sweet cassette deck <laughs> you know? um, oh well anyways yeah
2: but i think like vinyl blu-ray you know, still has a future, although it may be a more sort of you know boutique uh, experience. You know, like your Criterion's and, and your Kino Lorber, and and it's it's not a you know a given that any film will get a release. But I think we will continue to get physical releases of films, but they will probably be in this more like quote unquote special context. You know, not so much the. CBS bin of two dollar DVD uh, thing <laughs> thing as as much, yeah. But and you know, I I'm kind of sad about that, but. Also, as someone who does not maintain a, a physical, uh, media collection, or at least a physical film collection, I, I, I do have a, a lot of vinyl. Like, I, I f- also feel kind of hypocritical, like, like bemoaning it, you know? Like, it is a bummer that something like, I don't know, did Palm Springs, that, that's like a film that, that, mm-hmm. that I like and might want to rewatch. Did that get a physical release? I'm no. guessing no. probably, probably not, you know? So like, yeah, it's a little bit of a bummer, but also like, I'm not a person who rewatches films a whole lot. You know, so I, I think I tend to think of buying physical forms of of movies as more of like an archival project. And here is where I will go back to a point I have made on the the podcast several times before is that, uh, libraries exist and you should use them. And they mm-hmm. very often have amazing uh, f- physical media collections. I uh, remember when we did the, oh shoot, what was the Cassavetti's film we did uh, a couple years uh, uh, Killing of
0: a Chinese Bookie?
2: Yeah. Yeah. When we did Killing of a Chinese Bookie, like that was a, that's out of print, you know, like like we almost didn't do it because it was going to be hard for, for people to see. It's not streaming anywhere. And I, I, they're you know, not producing new DVDs of it, but they had it at my you know, local suburban Michigan library, which has a, a huge room, full of floor to ceiling full of DVDs and Blu-rays. And it was, I, I think, you know, seeing that room for the first time, because I just recently moved moved to Michigan, it was like, oh, the video store experience still exists. Mm. <laughs> you know, you just have to kind of want to go and get it in this slightly different context. But, um, you know, I, I I hope everyone out there has, has access to a collection is as nice as the one at the canton public library <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, that, that's my cinephile origin story is going to watch movies of the seventh floor of the uh, university of georgia library it videotapes and laser discs and uh you know i mean again it was just all kind of classics but just a massive collection and uh it, it's nice to see that and they're not just classics Continuous.
2: either. Like I, I think, like there there are still people who don't stream, you know, and I and yeah. like and there there are people who don't have like computers. That's why the, li- the libraries have like computers that people can come in and use. You know, like it's a increasingly smaller part of the the population, but there is, you know, there there are parents out there maybe who want to like show their kids the latest Minions movie and don't want to do it on Amazon, so they can go to the library and rent it. You know, it's not all highfalutin, you know, cinema archival stuff.
0: Well, I hope hope for Eric's sake that there's a fine uh, library in New Brunswick. (laughs) For uh, everyone's uh, sake. (laughs) Yes, for everyone's sake. Uh, uh, Well, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response in a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at The Dry, another Australian film about a rural community reshaped by mystery and loss. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or you can subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. If you want to hear it without ads, and while surrounded by extra Next Picture Show written and recorded content, Come support us on Patreon at patreon.com/nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod. So you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, I'm going to strap myself to the permanent posture improver until I can finally sit up straight. It